All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing? Uh, Jeff, you may have noticed I haven't shown up for the past two weeks. I hope you, uh, you'll forgive me. Um, two Sundays ago, we had we welcomed to the world a brand new Beatty baby, uh, Beatty baby number seven. And uh, he looks not at all like me because, well, some features, but he's he's uh, got bright blonde hair and uh, a lot of it. And uh, we'll see. He might be, he might have been, end up being pretty tall. So um, <laughs> I've been kind of uh, hunkering down, basically taking care of everyone else. Um, now that school's out, the pool's open. So we've been going to the pool in the, in the, during nap time with the older children. They absolutely love that. So it's um, it's just been a joy welcoming yet another uh, future citizen, uh, not future, he is a citizen, a future voter <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the fold. And, um, you know, I guess I came back just enough time because we're here tonight to welcome Nick Rowan, who uh, writes, I guess, I'm sorry, Katie was asking me about this. Um, I believe you're the executive editor. And so I, I told her, I think that's the editor who does all the work and, and gets all the, cre- <laughs> the, less the, of the credit. The title's managing editor. Managing um, editor. But, but it's the same thing where yeah. like you, you're the one who has to run things on a day-to-day basis and, uh, you know, appear lower on the masthead. Which is good. I'm not the ideas guy. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome. So, thank you so much for coming tonight. We appreciate it. You wrote two articles that we want to talk about. Um, one of them is kind of topical because it's about Robert Hansen, who recently just passed away. But the first one is about Marion Williamson and her second run for presidency. So she's not the only one who's uh, retreading old ground. And I think some of the points you try to make in the article is that she's bringing kind of a new tact to what she's saying. So it seems like she's saying a lot of the same ideas. I think you you mentioned that she's basically recycled a lot of Senator Bernie Sanders talking points from his campaigns, but she's shied away from a lot of the touchy-feely. How would you describe it? Well, I guess I should start with a a story. In 2020, after her her famous uh, dark psychic forces lines, she had kind of a, a boost um, and she went on a tour, uh, a preaching tour, where she preached at various seminaries up and down the East Coast and some in Iowa as well. And one of them was the seminary at uh, Howard University. And I was able to secure an interview with her because, you know, let's be honest, she wasn't a top tier candidate uh, and it was pretty easy. All you had to do was ask. Um, and when I sat down and talked to her, it was a really odd experience she's she's a very smart woman and uh you know very clearly cares about the the rot and decay in the soul of america from a left-wing perspective so her you know her diagnosis of the problem is much different than probably any of ours um but as i was talking to her you know she was using all sorts of strange new age words that even i didn't quite understand uh now now she's just sort of, you know, uh, as as you said, attempting to do a more, oh, I don't know, I would say more hip version of Bernie Sanders, uh, which is an interesting pivot. And back when I wrote the piece, uh, I think she was the only person in the field opposing Biden. That's not the case anymore. Um, I, I have to wonder, is she going to get edged out by by Cornell West, who seems to be you know, employing a a similar strategy, and I assume appealing to a similar sort of person. Isn't Cornell West running as an independent, though? 
He is. Um, what is his party's name? Is it the People's Party? I think that might be might what he's be calling it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, it's it's interesting you bring those two people together. Like John and I talk a lot about a lot is we're in a populist movement, right? And like right. We, yeah. we saw this populist wave in our country, you know, towards the end of the Gilded Age. And and why does populism tend to rise? Is like Plutarch said, you know, the greatest uh, like the greatest of all ailments for a republic is the imbalance of the rich and the poor. And so yeah. you have this like great, you know, boom in the country where you build these great businesses and everybody's kind of growing. And then it kind of goes to balance out and it doesn't balance equally. People get really frustrated. And then you kind of, you turn to populism, socialism, all these things. And you saw that in the late, uh, in the early progressive era, like right around the McKinley era. And now you layer that over what we got going today. It's the same thing. And so that's why we see all of these populist leaders and you're talking about, she's just retreading what, uh, what Bernie did. And then she's going on a speaking tour, like in a, you know, like she's a preacher. Then that's, a, that sounds a lot like William Jadenny Bryan, you know, very much. Yeah. And so it's like, these are the same problems that we've had before. And so like, I think us as conservatives is like, Back in the day, we, you know, Teddy Roosevelt came in and reformed the system. So like conservatives got to start talking about reform and like, you know, putting some checks on these corporations and how they function, because it's really the problem why we have these candidates running. Yeah, no, I, I actually think that you know, the reason why I'm interested and why I, uh, you know, schlepped down to Union Station to watch Marianne Williamson uh, launch her campaign a couple of weeks ago, or I guess months at this point, uh, wasn't really to make fun of her, uh, but because I I think she actually is tapping into something very real and describing a real problem. She, I, th I think she's pretty accurate in pointing out that the way in which the government and businesses interact is really toxic, um, and it, it benefits a very small group of people, um, and and you know really. Uh, hurts the rest of the country. I think that her solution, uh, though, is is you know it's it seems almost as impractical um, as you know what Brian wanted to do with uh, the gold and and silver standard kind of thing. That you know it it's just it it's the sort of thing that you notice that a large group of people, the populace, is suffering, and you decide to uh implement an elite led solution uh that sort of populism i just don't think is gonna uh, last in the end but it's interesting to see that paradox working i mean it's happened before i mean look at look at fdr after you know the the great depression you know right. i mean we kind of leaned into like government support and welfare and i think that's you know that's where a lot of our problems stem from it's just you've created created a massive amount of debt um and haven't done a very good job of paying it off or keeping up with it. Um, but yeah, so like Miriam, you know, she seems like you said a little radical, but she really is tapping into something I think is like actually there. And, you know, I talk to Democrats or I talk to Republicans and locally here, we have an issue with like data centers, you know, and I, I was just messaging with a guy today and he was telling me, you know, we got to get the Democrat to, on the ballot, like we got to go vote for the Democrat in the primary because if we if we don't get the other person, then our candidate doesn't doesn't stand a chance. And yeah. and so why I said why don't you think our candidate stands a chance? She goes if they face this person, then they'll be drowned out with money. 
I said, so it's, it's just about the money then. And they go, yes. And you know, the money comes from a lot from Amazon. You know, we have a board of supervisors candidate locally, Bob Weir, they literally write him checks, even though he doesn't want them and he donates them to charity. And they like force the money on the candidate. And that's like shaping, yeah. it's shaping the system and it's controlling the system and it's completely legal. And it's like, it's insane. Where Where is Amazon's office? Is it, um, is it in Herndon? Like the data? Uh, the HQ2 is going to go to Crystal City, but some of the big data centers are out in Loudoun. Like that's where the original right. US East one is. And then they've kind of, uh, we, we know someone who's familiar with some of that. And um, he just said like they're everywhere. So just because I think, you know, you see a big nondescript building, there's a good chance that it's one of their data centers and one of their operations yeah. centers. And I've driven out there and looked at that. Um, and I know from someone telling me that, that, you know, this is all, this is Amazon country. And how, how did it happen? Did, um, <laughs> how did, how did Amazon get it there in the first place? Why did they choose Latin? Why, you know, why not, um, why not the Maryland side? Uh, why not uh, Fairfax County? Well, that's the interesting thing with a lot of the the data centers is they actually require, uh, as much as we like to think of the cloud as amorphous, there's a huge physical aspect to it. Yeah. So at some point, um, Ashburn was picked. That used to be AOL's headquarters. Right. So if you go up like Waxpool Road, just uh, west of, of Herndon, there is the original or one of the big Amazon headquarter buildings. So there was a tech presence in this area. The land was cheap. And most importantly, you had connection to fiber and oh, you had sure. connection yeah. to some of the big fiber yeah. backup bones that would go across the country. And then once you've got sort of a, a nascent uh, infrastructure in place, it's really easy to just kind of build something next door because all you're doing is digging a hole from one and in your data center under the ground to the next data center, right. plug in some wires and uh, you've got the internet. So I think where we are now is kind of an artifact uh, historically of what happened in the early dot coms, you know, at this okay. point, probably 25, 30 years ago. Um, so that's kind of why that's why Ashburn. Um, it's, you know, you've got the fiber connections. Why go anywhere else? Because now you got to lay it, not just build the building, but you actually have to lay the, the fiber. And, right. um, you know, interestingly enough, like Facebook and Google, and I think Amazon out on the West Coast, they actually put data centers in like the Oregon desert because it's a lot cooler out there. So they, it makes sense for them to dig the trenches and, and bury the cables to get out there because the economics of cooling are going to be a lot cheaper. But um, out here on the West Coast, you're just kind of, it's it's easier to be uh, where everyone else is. So I, I think that's kind of why why Herndon, Ashburn, that kind of area, um, it's it's all clay. So it's not really great arable. For, it's basically you grow houses or you grow data centers out uh, in that area. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's kind of, why it is. And then, you know, since you're running out of space, you kind of go south to Prince William County because they've got open farmland that's available. Uh, and they've got some kind of, you know, mostly they've got the utilities, although that's an interesting uh, dynamic now where Dominion, the electrical companies actually doesn't have enough power for some of these data centers. So like, it's it's a weird um, where we are now, like kind of an inflection point of, um, there's enough, there's a lot of data centers, they're kind of eyesores. They do bring in tax revenue, but it's it's really hard to sort of um, draw that re relationship like that data center is keeping my property taxes lower. Yeah, and and so you asked like how did it get started and and John gave you the Loudoun County beginning, but in Prince William County like it it started during COVID, and so and, and a lot of these plans went into place and the board of supervisors all of them both parties signed NDAs 
from what yeah. I from what I've been told and like which seems to me like isn't that a like uh, you know derelict of duty you know if if your job is to represent your community shouldn't you be forced to tell them what is going on like how can you keep that yeah. stuff secret you know and I think that's where a lot of the frustration locally comes and you know is because we just didn't have a say in what happened to our community right well when when I hear stuff like that I wonder is you know, is, is the political situation out there really that desperate? Um, or or is there or is there something else at play? Is there some other reason why you would, you know, sign an NDA? Uh I think she we've just elected the wrong people. Like plain and simple, you know, from from talking to them, being in there, you know, the people that are running for office or have been on that board are just they're there for you know, I, I hate to say for profit, I don't know that for sure, but like it sure seems that way from the outside. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like well, it, it, maybe if, not if profit, but if, power. If I may step in as, as an elected official that has to go into closed session to talk about land acquisitions, yeah. I can kind of see the, the the reason that like they're gonna spend a lot of money and they don't want it to leak out that they're gonna pick this spot because then maybe the price will go up or I can oh, see there's sure. some kind of reason yeah. for the NDA. So there's that. But I think that the going back to like the dereliction of duty for the elected leaders. Um, it's the elected leader's job to kind of talk about that and sort of explain like why this is going through. And right. I know there's a lot of frustration on our local school board about having closed sessions. And I think usually I would say that like it's it's reasonable to have these closed sessions because it's about legal advice. Sometimes we have to buy land um, or to not just like a prop piece of property, but maybe purchase an easement from someone in order to to facilitate the school. So I can see the NDA, but that goes Jeff. That goes back to your point about communication. It's the elected officials. If if their communication, their constituents is well, I can't sign an NDA. I can't talk about it. Like that's bad. Like they should really talk about like I can't sign an NDA because they're going to buy this land and it may the deal might go south. You know, like there's a whole lot of things for it, and this this is really better for you. And I think that goes back to Nick. You were saying like, what kind of are we in a bad political situation? Like there's just not a lot of trust where yeah. um, you don't trust your elected officials to make good decisions for. The common good and i would i was reading uh, my blackstone commentaries at the pool um and there was sort of the introduction they were talking about like blackstone's idea um and this is i think he's reiterating cicero sort of your elected officials aren't necessarily to sort of sometimes they got to make decisions that people don't like for what they think is the common good now if you thankfully we're an elected system so if you don't like what decisions you make like there is the ballot box where you can get them out right. and i guess you know, if it's a matter of corporate money coming in and flooding the zone and making it hard to elect someone, then that's another problem too. Yeah. And that's what Marine sees, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, with, with so many people who, who see this problem, um, once you point it out, uh, you've made it very difficult for, you know, for you at least to do anything about it, uh, just because the weight of, you know, Amazon, for instance, gets, you know, pushed against you almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I, I think back to, to Teddy, right? Like, th there's this guy who was a conservative. He was a progressive in a lot of ways. He was, an, he was part of the elite, you know, um, of the country as well. But he wasn't afraid to, you know, kind of walk the streets with the people, learn about them, understand what the real struggle was. And he, you know, he did what our founders were trying to do. He tried to balance the system, right? And it's like, I got to, I got to pull him out there. And it's like, I'd say, Madison, he's just trying to balance the crooks, right? Because we're all surrounded. They presuppose all these things. You read the Federalist paper, and this is what they talk about. 
And so it's like, we just stopped doing that. We stopped trying to balance. It's the railroads were this interconnected system that brought us closer together, created new markets of commerce. And so is fiber optic. You're drilling from one point to another and you're connecting people on a faster level. It created more commerce. It created more wealth. It created more corruption. And we didn't write any rules for it. We didn't curb it. We didn't regulate it. We didn't do our job in the government. And it created you know, this massive mess. And now you've got the hysterics of you know, the populist leaders trying to take advantage of this, you know, and finding out if they're genuine or real is really difficult. And I think somebody like Marie, when she comes out a little crazy in the first election, now she wants to be serious about her economic policy. You know, people like me go, How can I take you seriously? <laughs> right. Well, and then, you know, since she launched her campaign, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but there was a story maybe last week or the week before, but, you know, like her three top advisors quit because it's not going anywhere. And, uh, and you know, you, you can put together a good speech, you can point out real problems, you can, you know, crib from Bernie Sanders, uh, circa 2016. But if you if you don't have the money yourself to win the election, uh, it, you know, it, it really does seem like it's for nothing. You gotta have the right message. I mean, the money, you've got to have money in the system. Like it's got to happen. And I'm I'm of the belief that there are virtuous people out there that would pay into money to somebody that had the right message. Um, and I just don't think she has the right message, you know, no. and, and, and that's why she's not going to be able to get the money. Um, you know, that's part of the problem. Well, she's, she's too similar too. I mean, there's one thing to point out the problems, but then if your solutions are the same as everyone else's, it's kind of like, well, you yeah, did the right. you did the work, you know, you said what's wrong, and you're just taking my points, and um, you know, I'm much more well known, so I'm gonna take the lead. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. Yeah, the tales old as time. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys think that Biden's going to be the nominee? If, you know, for Democrats. I I think it's too early to even speculate. Like, I mean, and okay. I, say this, I say this respectfully as just a human being who observes people. I worry about his health, right? Like, I mean, if you're asking me, to, like, I got to predict when somebody, how long somebody's going to live at this stage yeah. or be mentally capable. I mean, we always risk the day that he wakes up and he can't remember his name and he can't go out and do an interview. And the moment that happens, like there's real problems in the country that they're going to have to address. They can't just put them on the ballot. You know, this is, you know, we can't Woodrow Wilson, this situation, lock him away and have his wife run the white house. That's not going to fly in today's, uh, you know, digital right. age. So um, I just, it's too hard to say. I hope not. I don't want to see Biden or Trump on the ballot. I want to see two fresh faces. I want to see somebody under the age of 60 on the ballot for crying out loud, like somebody that's actually invested in the future of this country because they're going to live longer right. than five years. Like, give me some hope or something, you know? Yeah, I uh... I would say it's a little too early, too. I mean, I think you maybe you wait for one of the first primaries to get a good sense. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm, uh, what was it? Um, Lyndon, you know, Lyndon Johnson, he kind of stepped aside after the first couple of primaries. So I think that would be a, a key test. But um, it is kind of weird that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is polling so well um, when by all well, accounts yeah, he would seem as not mainstream at all. This is what I was wondering. You know, once once it comes down to brass tacks, are, are people really going to throw their support behind him? I I don't know. Uh, it'd be really interesting if they did. Uh he doesn't have a voice for, for uh -huh. public speaking. 
we were talking, I was talking about that with somebody the other day is like, they were like, I like his ideas. I can't listen to him. Yeah. It's, it's really odd. Um, and yet, and yet he still pulls well. Uh, I, I'll be curious to see how that turns out. I think I, and this scares me to say this, but the corruption is so bad that the people might just vote for anybody. Like yeah. just whatever sounds the best, you know, no reason. Like I'm just mad. I'm upset. I'm going to turn your world upside down and I'm going to vote for this person. I kind of feel that's kind of what Trump was. It's a, it was a message. It was Andrew Jackson taking hold and, you know, changing the power in Washington. Um, I think Trump just didn't handle it very well. Um, he wasn't as virtuous as Andrew Jackson was. And uh, now you have the chance for it to happen again. And that's the scary part when you, you know, have these populist movements is who does the pop, who do the people vote for? You know? Well, yeah. You know, I'm trying to remember who who says this, but the, with, with populist movements in general, it seems that the candidate who comes out, you know, as, as the leader is basically reflective of the virtue of the people. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you get, a candidate like Trump, you know, say what you will about his presidency, it's had its ups and downs, but, you know, a candidate in 2016, it was sort of distressing representation of, uh, you know, the virtue of the country. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's uh, was <laughs> a little distressing. Yeah, and yet, you know, um, we're, we're lucky that the, that the system works the way it does. We're not entirely uh dependent on the virtue of our candidates uh for for governance yeah and you i could say you know trump had his his vices but you know i think the interesting thing is so did his his opponent so right um you can't just blame it as a well because he won and he's got these vices that automatically reflects the country it was a weird situation where his opponent at the time also had her own problems and i think it was you could easily say like maybe people were voting more against those problems and sort of the unknowns. Um, right. Especially if it was, you know, the, the corruption and the insider dealing, not necessarily uh, being on his, his third or, or fourth marriage and um, kind of more below the belt vices rather than just the real like uh, intellectual dishonesty and, and holding uh, multiple thoughts and, at the same time and, and trying to uh, lie to people. Um, right. Uh, Speaking then, of. Uh, this is the artful pivot. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, you were, you wrote another article we we were going to talk about, and uh, why don't you tell the people a little bit about the the person you were you know kind of profiling? Okay, um, so let's see. I guess we'll start at the end. Uh, Robert Hansen died earlier this week. He, I believe, still holds the record for most state secrets sold to the Russians, or at least most uh, assets of the U.S., you know, people either killed or uh, imprisoned uh, at the hands of the of the Soviets um, before he was arrested. He was, what, weeks away from retirement, something like that, something absurd. Um, he very nearly got away with it um, in 2001. Uh, and it would have been the biggest story of the year. Um, in any case, uh, I wrote a review of a new book on him from last year. And, you know, the, the book itself was whatever. The, the case has been 
rehashed a million times at this point. But what I wanted to focus on was a curious position that a lot of people who work in government find themselves in, and, and, and people all over find that themselves in this position too, where you develop a sort of uh, Superman complex where uh, good and evil exists and um, and you know there there are forces of good and forces of evil in the world, but you stand outside of it all almost as an observer and dip in every now and then to make decisions that you believe are right and expedient uh, for you know for for whatever good you're trying to achieve and um, you know this ultimately ends in, in madness um, because you you can't you can't hold two opposing ideas in your head. Uh, and believe both of them to be true forever, but you you can you can do it for many for many decades, which is what Hansen did when he was uh, on the one hand working for the FBI and on the other uh, selling secrets to the Russians. He 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 genuinely, I think, believed he was doing both things for you know for the common good, um, which is a really a uh, tricky situation to get yourself in, but I think I think we all end up there, uh, you know, at our on our worst days. Anyway, that that was what the piece was about. Yeah, I mean, I th- I found that that thought process interesting. You know, this idea that you hold these two different lines, these two different thoughts, and you you talk about it in this like intellectual way. It's like this is a sign of high intelligence um, and reason, you know. But you know, reason lacking morals is, you know chaos or, you know, uh, unreasonable. And I think, you know, I think people like this, I think what they do is they rationalize like the good and the bad of what they accomplish. And they say, well, if somebody else was doing this, if I wasn't doing this bad thing, somebody else would be in this position doing something worse. And therefore I'm lessening the bad thing. And therefore it's a net good for society. And I'm a good person still. But in reality is like, like you mentioned, Superman complex, good and evil. Who gets to decide what's good and evil? How does one person get to make those decisions? And should you have that much power in any aspect of your life? Because power corrupts. Like it's just, it's a known fact of society and and, and life. And no matter how good you are, you know, we're all imperfect and we're all susceptible to that. And I think Maybe our government, our FBI, or maybe we should th- rethink about how we do these spying things and putting people in these positions to make to to be corrupted in this way. Yeah, the the one the one thing that really got me about this specifically is um, Hansen was, uh, I think he he said at one time that his favorite book was The Way by Jose Maria Escriva, uh, which isn't. An odd favorite for for someone who's who's going through this because Escriva's whole point in the way is that ultimately you're not the master of your fate. Uh, God is, and um, and, and you know you sort of have to be humble before that, and more than that before uh, you know mentors and leaders in your life who can who can give you advice and um, you know can can tell you no you're not superman uh you you can't you can't decide good and evil um and that you know that in a book that i'm sure he read many times missing all of that to me is very strange that does i don't think that answers the question of how can we solve this at a large governmental uh 
level. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for when you're working in government, uh, especially in DC, surrounded by people who are all kind of thinking the same way as you and going through the same modes, it becomes very easy to be caught up in your own uh, bubble of one uh, while you're surrounded by many other people who are also in their bubble of one. Um, so I don't know, maybe we should send the FBI out to Cleveland or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got to send them to Northern Virginia where they... Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. We've got an FBI building in, in Prince William County already. So, um, but I mean, I, I don't think that's actually a terrible idea. I mean, it, in all aspects of like society, when government becomes, you know, power becomes centralized, the best way to de is to decentralize it, spread it out, spread it away from each other and put it down where there's more people in the system holding each other accountable, you know? And then, yeah, like, as far as like, I think our na our national rot, you know, is the military industrial complex or the policing of America that happened after World War II. And then, yeah. and then, well, I would say the military industrial complex after World War II and then the policing of America after 9-11, okay, is like we have this, you know, I'm not going to call it a surveillance state, but you feel like it is at times. And so, you know, the key is, is like, again, we put, we concentrated all this power. It's not regulated properly by Congress because as John and I talk about a lot, there's not enough people in Congress to actually regulate these things. There's nobody actually like paying attention. They don't have the time. There's only 435 of them and there's 330 million. And there's all these new agencies that didn't exist the last time they raised the number of people in Congress. They've been given all this new responsibility and they just don't have enough time. So, you know, yeah, build another Congress, put it in Kansas, right? Move, you know, have 870, 435 here and 435 there, and then spread out the DOD, the CIA and everything all across the country and allow them to like be held accountable and set some guidelines for how we interact in foreign nations with spying. You know, there should be some basic decorum that we should do. I don't necessarily know that we're asking our agents to do the right things all the time. You know, maybe we're putting them in the positions to make them think that they have this much power when we shouldn't be granting them that because it's not our decision to do that. Yeah. Well, and there's a weird jurisdiction aspect too with the FBI too, because they're more domestic and, and uh, the CIA is more international. So um, that is the weird thing where uh, obviously there's deeper infiltration if uh the Russians are concerned about the domestic policing agency as opposed to like the CIA, which you would assume would be the ones inside Russia trying to figure out what's going on behind the, the, the steel curtain. Yeah, and that actually plays into the Hansen story uh, directly. Prior to him, I'm forgetting the name of the guy uh, who was arrested maybe five years before uh, for the same thing. Uh, he lived, he worked in the CIA uh, he lived in Northern Virginia. He uh, sold the secrets at my local bar, actually, a um, oh. place called Mr. Smith's. Uh, but um, for years, the the CIA and the FBI were looking for the mole, and they were convinced that it had to be in the CIA because, you know, what? why, why would the FBI, why would a leak be coming from the FBI to Russia, the CIA makes much more sense for that venue. Um, anyway, that, that. Oh, interesting. Oh, that is interesting that that was uh, 
the mis miscommunication between the agents. Right. Yeah, and, it, and it's it's actually the reason why he was not caught earlier because what he all he did was he had a he knew how to get around the FBI's mainframe. He you know, he used he knew how to use the internet, and many of the other older agents did not. It was the early nineties, uh, and it was often just as simple as going in the back end of a website uh, and and downloading something. Uh, which anyone can do now, but I guess in, in 1995, this was a very uh, this is a very novel thing. There weren't enough uh, pipes in the ground in Ashburn to get that all working. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> bring bring it all together. Um, no, but so it is true. Just the fact that we do ask a lot for public servants. Sometimes, I mean, I know a couple of family members who are involved in various agencies, and it isn't. Uh, it's incredibly common where they just, they all, I would say they, not that they live a double life, but they do have two lives, a work life where they solve important problems, complicated problems for our country. And then they come home and they can't say a word about it. Um, right. And, you know, my father in particular, like he worked for the central intelligence agency and I had no idea what he did. Um, they had this summer program where you could come in and kind of like work at the agency uh, was sponsored by your parents. Um, so that was really cool because I actually got to see his desk and that was about it. Like he kind of <laughs> showed me around and he's like, okay, so don't look over there. You can't look at those posters. And, you know, that's, this is kind of where I work. Um, so like, you know, it was just, you know, I would say, you know, a father can come home and talk about what he does. And my dad just was kind of like, well, I'm a, I'm a project manager in the U.S. government. And um, so it, it is, you can definitely see how that kind of work would lead to the kind of compartmentalization where in one end, you are the Superman of, of the agency, solving problems, finding mainframe problems, and maybe telling people about them and they don't listen to you. So now you're going to prove them right and say like, look, it's so easy to steal state secrets. Um, which is, which is how it started actually. Um, and oftentimes he would like show off and like fix things for people, you know, fix things for the FBI because he could. Um, and then, you know, would also sell secrets on this. But it it's it seems to me that it that intelligence is the intelligence community is in a bad spot where I think everyone's natural assumption, um, like if you told me my dad works for the, the CIA, the first thing I would think is, oh, he probably does something immoral. Um, <laughs> which is like generally not true of a lot of these people. Um but I like so, the, but I can't tell you, you know. Right, yeah, who who knows? Um, but like the the very fact that like that's what most people immediately think when when someone says, Yeah, I work for the FBI, um, you know, or, or even like I work for the IRS, people think like, Oh, you're doing something horribly immoral over there. Um, yeah. and maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, you make a very good point in and I think it's the way that it's portrayed, it's the stories that we're told. Right. Like we're only told certain stories. We don't get told the good stories of where all the things that happen and, and whatnot. I mean, and you hear these bad things and they sound really bad. And then you it may touch you in your life somewhere and you go, how could this have happened? Um, I, I can't believe that. And now it's just the only voice that you're hearing. And so it becomes, you know, you talked about that. Everybody's living their own like bubble, you know, now that bubble is spread on everybody and they're seeing the same thing. So, um, need more virtue in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess that's the parenting part of the podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, 
Really? I mean, actually, uh, today, so I have twin six-year-olds. Uh, I've got five. John's got me beat with seven, but I've, I've got twin six-year-olds. And um, Sadie, my one of the twins, she's, she's what I call an active communicator, and active communicators are active liars. Yeah. Eleanor is a passive communicator, and passive communicators are silent liars, okay? And so today, I came downstairs. Vanessa and I, uh, we had a – it's been – long week. We slept in, we overslept, we missed church. We come downstairs, the kids, you know, up with their older brother and they've gotten breakfast and everything. And I, I kind of smell bacon and eggs. And I go, did your brother make you bacon and eggs this morning? No, we had cereal. And I, you know, that's what Sadie said. I said, you didn't have any bacon. No. Well, later in the afternoon, because Eleanor doesn't answer, I just accept Sadie's answer because there's no reason for me to assume that she's lied. So I don't want to make her feel like I think she's a liar. Um, later in the evening, Vanessa and I are talking about bacon. We're like, where's the bacon? The bacon's gone. And so I turned to Eleanor. I said, did you eat bacon this morning? And she goes, yep. And I go, where was that answer this morning when I asked you? And she goes, Sadie answered. I didn't answer. And I said, but you knew the answer and you stayed quiet. And that's a quiet lie. And quiet lies aren't good either. You got to be able to stand up and tell the truth, even if somebody else is lying, because that's important in holding your sister accountable so she makes good decisions. Um, and I think we need to teach that, like in our society, yeah. you know, like we should teach that to our kids. We should teach that to our public officials. Um, but yeah, it's funny watching kids, you know, they're just little manipulation machines. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, my daughter's not old enough for that um, quite yet. But when I put her to bed, it's just every single stuffed animal in the house. She's asking for it to be brought to her. Mm -hmm. I have to cut, cut it off at a certain point. Yeah, well, they learn, you know, they're taken care of. And so they it's it's almost like they think they're in charge, you know, <laughs> when they transition from stage to stage. It's like, no, give me right. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's that Superman complex again. Well, it's Yeah, that's one. right. <laughs> It's the sins of uh, omission and the sins of commission. It's like the omission is when you uh, you don't say anything, mm -hmm. and the commission is when you're actually committing it. So that's uh, that is uh, the what is it? It's the uh, that's the theology for, for that. practical wisdom of how that all works. Yeah. yeah. But, no, I mean it is good to, to to teach. You know, not as not only is it just telling an, out, an outright lie, but um, being part of part of a bigger lie and not stepping forward like that is just as uh, key and I, I do agree that that's something that you want to instill in your children as they get older um that uh truth telling is is also um what you allow to go by and, and not say anything about um and you know you could say that you could translate to the to the political sphere where um you know just because you don't agree with the policy or something that might not be a big deal, but if it's something that could be morally wrong, like you do have a a, a need to stand up against it and, and say something, um, you know, or make it less worse if you can, or something like that. So, I think that you know it starts at a young age and it continues throughout your entire life. Yeah. Yeah, like signing an NDA when you're <laughs> supposed to inform people of what's going on. Right. Right before <laughs> we started. <laughs> Uh, well, Nick, this was, uh, this was great. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, how can people find you? <laughs> um, well, you could Google me, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm on Twitter at Nick X but I, um, I do not tweet very often. Um, you find me on the lampmagazine.com. 
Hitmagazine.com. Yeah. John, anything to uh, leave the people with before we get out of here? I'm, I would just admit that I'm a, a LAMP subscriber and I love it. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in Catholic culture that isn't like uh, too terribly religious, oh, what, what would you say? Because like, it's not all about uh, Catholicism, but it's sort of, uh, it's moral and it's, uh, it's just fun. Yeah, I, I mean, the way that I think about it is we are uppercase C Catholic, but we're also lowercase C Catholic. You know, we want anything interesting, anything good, we want it. That's our, that's our MO. Well, uh, this week you might have noticed I got my Matt Lewis mug. Uh, John and I went to his uh, How to Be a Pundit class last year, and I'll be going again this year. Uh, it's on Wednesday in uh, at the Leadership Institute. He'll be hosting it with Stephen Kent. Uh, you can go online or you can go in person. You can register at the Leadership Institute if you're interested. Uh, I'd be happy to see you there. Um, we also have a couple Madisonian events coming up soon. On July 8th, we are having a big Madisonian small business showcase at Great Main Brewery in Haymarket, Virginia. It's going to be from 12 to 6. So come out and join us. You can RSVP on our website. And then on July 24th, we're also having a Madisonian dinner where you can come out, sit down with the team and just ask questions, talk about politics in a small, intimate setting. Um, space is limited on that one. So make sure you RSVP. Um, again, you can find that on our website at madisonianrepublicans.com. And as always, peace and love. <laughs>